0: Tonight is a really momentous night uh, because it was about four months ago, I think, when we started this journey, uh, and I'm happy to have so many people here all the way throughout and all the way to the end, uh, of trying to ask a a central, pivotal, crucial question uh, in Jewish life, uh, and that is the question of Torah study. Uh, We know, we demonstrated it, everyone knows this, this is the story of Jewish history, that the Jews have been and always uh, uh, are and have been uh, obsessed with Torah study. Uh, and the question that we set out to try to answer uh, and the riddle that we came to try to unlock is why? why? Why are we so obsessed? And I'm actually doing the mathematics. I'm counting. And this is the 11th lecture that we've had on this issue. So this is going to be the 11th and the final uh, on this issue, uh, and we're going to move on to kind of delving into the actual nuts and bolts. Uh, but I thought it was prudent, before we get started on what Torah actually is, uh, to start with a question that's maybe not as asked as often, and that is, why are we studying Torah uh, with such commitment over such a long period of time? And of course, once we satisfactorily answer that, then I think if we haven't done that yet, we'll hopefully get to that tonight. Uh, or we'll continue to try to satisfactorily answer that question, we're going to move on to, okay, so we know why we study Torah, but let's break down what it's about. What do we know about the authorship? How do we know that this is untainted, uncorrupted, that it's the same Torah that we got from God? Because remember, if it's not not God's Torah, it's not Ten Commandments, it's Ten Suggestions. Uh, And also kind of delving into the real nitty-gritty, kind of the advanced questions of oral Torah, written Torah, Talmud, their interrelationship, really trying to understand what it's all based upon and how it all works. So I want to start with a reason why we start to study Torah, which, you know, it's, it's something that I feel very dear to my, to my heart. And, um, and I think it's a, it's a legitimate idea, but maybe the less exposure we've had to Torah study, the harder it will be to appreciate it. When we study Torah, what's the model It means, how do we go about engaging with a Torah study? We start with the text, we start with the content, and then we try to integrate that into our minds, and of course, hopefully into our behavior, into our bodies as well. And I think what's unique about Torah study is that we're not hesitating about the content itself. It's as if the content is fixed, the destination is set in stone, and we need to try to navigate to see how that made sense. What we do is like this. Well, I spent many years in yeshiva. And in yeshiva, you know, you, you, you go and you walk to the yeshiva, you see students each opening up a page of Talmud and screaming at each other the blue face, trying to understand what's going on. And the question that's never asked is, what's going on and does, was this a mistake? No one ever entertains, there's any mistakes, because it's the Torah. And the, the, even the Talmud, the Talmud, you know, we have thousands of rabbis collaborating over hundreds of, of years, the most intelligent people that ever walked this planet, and every word was edited and re-edited and re-edited, like everything's there for a reason. When we study the Torah, it's a lot of reverse engineering. And, it, and we, we, we start with a fixed statement, and then we say, wait a minute, there's a lot of obvious questions. What's going on? And there's a joy and a delight to try to reverse engineer it, to try to take it all apart and try to put it back together in a way that makes sense. And to me, this kind of sheds light on what Torah really is about. You know, We have a touch point in our lives, potentially, with God. And we spoke about this prior, but because it's God's Torah, it's God's mind. And sometimes we start off and it says... Gosh, there really are so many problems. This doesn't make any sense to us. And the sensitivity that we have as Jews is that we realize that the mistake, the reason why we don't understand Torah is not because of Torah, rather it's because of us. And we have to try to reformulate the way we understand things, try to uh, you know, come up with ideas to try to make it work. And make, make sense out of it. I'll, I'll give you another example. Sometimes in in, 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 in in science, you have a reality, but you have no idea why that thing is true. But you know it's true. It's it's observable. It's it's uh, it's objectively true. And there's a joy to try to understand it because it starts off as being so contradictory. I, I, I think I, I've you know I think that you know I, I've spent uh, a long time uh, studying the words of the Rambam. Uh, and what's interesting about the Rambam's works, maybe we'll get to it a little bit later on, uh, is that he doesn't give you any sources. So the Rambam was the first to write a book that distilled all of the halacha, all of the practical Jewish law, out of the Talmud. He was the first to do that. Obviously a very innovative idea to try to organize the laws, just the conclusions of the Talmud, and not... On the page, it's not going with the order of the Talmud, rather, he had a new reformulation of Jewish law. The order was his own. But not only that, he doesn't give any sources. So he says a law and he doesn't tell you where he got it from. Anywhere in the Talmud, and anywhere in the Michiltan, Sephar and Sefri and Koanim, and all the Madrashim, and all the works of the of, of the luminaries that precede him, anywhere could be where his source. And there's a joy when we study a page in Talmud. And I say, oh, let's look what the Rambam says on this particular matter. We find the corresponding Rambam, and we have two documents in front of us. Our Talmud, our Rambam. And we have no idea how is it possible that the Rambam, the genius of geniuses, the Renaissance man, the greatest man of the past millennium, the great genius who was able to do so much uh, works of of, of of immortality, the first one to write commentary for the Mishnah, the first one to organize all of uh, all of Jewish law. How is it possible that he read the same page of Talmud as I'm reading right now, same words, and he comes and he, this is his conclusion. It seems so bizarre. And you look at some of the commentaries that uh, that are contemporary contemporaneous to the Rambam, and you see how they explain it. And you're like, this makes sense, this makes sense, this makes sense. But what is the Rama thinking? What's going on over here? But you know for sure that this is something that he wrote, and he only wrote it after he was absolutely abundantly sure of what he was writing, and he re-edited it over, o- over decades. This is for sure what he's, but what's going on over here? And the destination set, and your job is to try to, you know, retrace his steps. It's as if you, you could take a walk and a journey, with the mind of the Rambam, and see how he gets to where he gets to. What's and the
1: possibility that he sourced it, but he
0: didn't release it? So the Rambam writes in a letter that he, that he wanted, at the end of his life, he wanted to write the, the sources for all his, his works. He started writing, it, but he didn't finish it. Uh, his son we know, uh, Rabbi Abraham, the son of the, the Rambam, who was a great scholar of his own right, and the only reason why he's not as famous as he would be is because he's the son of the Rambam, And thus, we kind of look at him, he grew up in the shadow, and anyone who grows up in the shadow of the Rambam is going to pale by comparison. But he wrote a book that we don't have anymore. We have people that have referenced that book, but he actually spent a majority of his life defending his father and his father's works, and thus, he actually wrote that book that we would have loved to have, uh, and we don't have that. But I've done this. Uh, there's more books written on the Rambam than any other book uh, of, of its of its era. There's thousands upon thousands of, of commentaries on the Rambam, and one of the reasons why it's so delightful to study is because you really have you know uh, a, a, you know an open canvas because he doesn't at all tell you how he gets there. So you have the sources, you have his conclusions, and then you have this joy to try to connect those two. And uh, and I, and I feel like it's, it's more. I want to, what I'm saying is this is more of like a process. It's a process of engaging with information and it's a certain joy and exhilaration of trying to understand. So
1: is everybody that came after him as what
0: Oh, absolutely not. Not everyone that was around at his time. Not everyone, of course. But that's the nature of, of, of Torah study. A Torah study, so there's multi... Why do we depend on him? Well, we depend on him. Uh, we don't depend on him as the last word. Uh, but we, he is uh, the bedrock of of halacha because even even his uh, detractors agree that he wrote halacha like no one else and even the ones that um, argue with him they argue with him out of reverence because they recognize his scholarship that being said there are certain instances in which we do not follow the halacha like the rambam and that's it's actually the problem that the shulchan aruch came to solve because the rambam tried to tried, tried to write the the book. To end all arguments, and essentially, he engendered more arguments than any other book. So you're
1: referring to the Mishnah
0: Torah. The Mishnah Torah, that's right. Okay. So he wrote Mishnah Torah, and then comes along the Rush, a hundred years later, uh, another contemporary, I guess, in the same era, and he writes also a book of halakha. But um, only four books compared to the. Well, no, he wrote, he, but he wrote it uh, uh, on the you know uh, on the page of the Talmud, and then you have the tour, who also wrote his work of Allah. So then you have come 500 years later and the realm started something, He kicked off a trend, and before you know it, there's many, many other people and they're not all the same. So, the, so to synthesize that and to take positions, that's what the Shulchan Aruch came to do. To navigate uh, that, that whole, uh, that whole um, um, uh, realm of, of scholarship, and to try to find a way to come with one consensus. At least, you know, he had his, his, his methods, and some people maybe question his methods. So in this
1: current day, do we
0: have one halacha that we follow? Or? Well, the halacha became more and more granular. So yes, there is one halakha that we follow, but there is granularity to it. Uh, there's also customs. So there's the Sephardic and the Ashgazic custom. Uh, we know that Shulchan Aruch was written with, a, um, uh, with the accompaniment of, uh, of the Ramah, who was contemporary to Rabbi Joseph Cairo, and they both set out to write the same thing. And they ended up having a different method of navigating all these halacha works. So imagine you have 500 years of halacha works, and now, okay, we want to write one definitive one. Once that era is sealed, let's write a definitive work of halacha. So he set out to do it, and he chose essentially majority rules, the Shulchan Aruch did, he took the major halachic opinions and chose majority rules. He kind of took the, the, the consensus of, of the Rishonim. And the Ramah, he took the one of recency. Because recency, in within a certain era, if you're more recent, you have the gift of reflection upon th- those that preceded you. So the Ramah, his method of trying to navigate this problem, which is really a blessing, right, of having so much halacha, was to take the later Opinions, uh, because they essentially are able to reflect upon the opinions of those that preceded them and to give uh, a primacy to those opinions. And that created this dynamic where uh, sometimes there will be a divergence between the opinion of Shulchan Aruch and the sister work, which is the Ramah, and typically the Sephari communities follow the Shulchan Aruch and the Ashnazic communities follow the Ramah when there's this but, but But, point out... The disagreements are kind of very minor, so I'll give you an example. Um, we know that there's bread and there's sub-breads with regards to the laws of Jewish blessings, correct? When you eat a, a bread, it become, it's a hamotzi, special blessing hamotzi, uh, that we make on bread only. Uh, then you have a pretzel, which is basically the same thing, but it's a different blessing. Uh, you have a piece of cake, and it's a different blessing. And the question is, why? So that so the Talmud talks about this bread and subbread. And the question is, how exactly, you know, to what extent do we have to add sweeteners to bread to make it from bread to subbread? That's why the sephardim, they don't have ekhalas and Shabbos. The sephardim don't have ekhalas and Shabbos. Why? Because they want to have because in the sephardim, the Sephardic opinion of this matter. Following the shulchan, the shulchan aruch is that if you put even a little bit of other non flour water ingredients into the bread, it's going to downgrade it it's from being sub-bread bread it. to sub bread. They make a in it. That's why they only have water chalas. Interesting. Dave. I thought when collectively we study halacha, we study rambam. Am I saying? Well, yes, a, but uh, that's not. And I understand he's the authority, though. Right. Well, he, he is the authority for some communities, like, for example, the Yemenite communities, they accept his word as being the final word in halacha. Mm-hmm. Traditionally, he's not the final word in halacha. Uh, he's maybe the first word, maybe the authoritative word in halacha, but not the last word in halacha. Well, maybe not the last, but the most authoritative would be wrong. Well, um, uh, Jewish communities uh, really everywhere unanimously accepted the words of the Shulchan Aruch, and we know historically whenever there is this shift in eras and thus a shift in Torah uh, and then there's one work that's accepted by all, you know, universally amongst all Jews that becomes like kind of the standard bearer. So what made the Talmud the definitive work of, of Talmud, of Gemara? Because everyone accepted it. What made the Rambam? So the, what made the Shulchan Aruch the definitive work? Because everyone accepted it because everyone knew there was a job that needed to be done. He essentially filled a role that someone would have had to have done it, and he was at the right place at the right time, with the right skills and capabilities to do that. But
1: where does the
0: Rambam disagree with Shulchan Aruch? Yeah, most of the time they don't disagree. It's, but is there some
1: disagreement? Yes, there's going, there's going to
0: be instances where the Shulchan Aruch does not follow the Rambam. But what? Yeah. Gosh, I mean, there's probably hundreds of them. Um, because the 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 took, took a much more kind of um, um, exhaustive look at halacha, so he would look at the Talmud. So he would look at the Talmud, and he would look at all the commentators of the Talmud, and he would, of course, invoke the opinions well, of the think, Rambam. So we would know
1: have some idea what's at stake. Here.
0: Uh an example. I, 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 I on the top of my head, it's hard to think. But the, for example, laws of nida. As to the Rambam, he has his own opinion. Pop my head, right? Uh, as to what renders someone a zavagodola, uh, and he's the only one who has this kind of seven eleven uh, opinion, where he talks about a woman uh, who sees an emission uh, seven days later, and then eleven days later, and he's the only one that says that. And he's essentially on an island with regards to how to understand this very complex Torah law, and Allah does not follow him. Because he's kind of a lone wolf or a lone opinion uh, on that matter. Top of my head, sorry, it's the first thing I came up with. But there, so there are.
1: Doesn't require that seven and eleven.
0: No, it's not. It's not a matter of requirement. It's just a matter of understanding what renders someone as of a zavagadola. Okay, just an example. But there are. I'm sure there are hundreds. But but most often, there's not going to be disagreements. And if the disagreements, uh, they the, you know, once again, they're always very minor. I have a go ahead.
1: All right, those those people, those that followed, uh, you said that the Rambam in the Mishnah Torah did not cite his sources. That's right. Did everyone else that followed with these works that you mentioned cite their sources? So, so many is of these... The only many of these. one, yes, question go ahead. number two is, did he do that deliberately so that people would have to go back and study and remember,
0: Okay, so I'll start with question number two. The Rambam okay. did it deliberately, I would say, even though later on he regretted it. He did it deliberately because he wrote a work not of scholarship. It ended up being a work of scholarship. Mm-hmm. But ironically, if you look, read really the introduction of the Rambam, and I highly advise everyone to do that because it's available online. Just Rambam introduction to Mishnah, not Mishnah, Mishnah Torah. Mm -hmm. because he has an interest to as well. Uh, If you read that introduction, he outlines a very interesting history. Like He does a very good job of succinctly giving us the history of Torah and the events that that propelled him to write a definitive work of halacha. But he writes it uh, uh, with a reflection on the status of scholarship in his time. It used to be everyone was capable of studying all of Talmud. And had the capacity and the intelligence and the community to be able to glean from the Talmud Halacha. Nowadays, it's became more difficult, and people became more scattered. There became less uh, 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 con- con- conventions of, of scholars, and the scholarship waned, and therefore people don't know Halacha. So therefore, I, the Rambam, my I studied this all intently, and I organized the Halacha for you. So, it's not a work of scholarship. It, and ultimately, it became a work of scholarship. So, ironically, what the Rambam set out to do in, in, in a weird way, historically, he didn't achieve that. But he did even more than that uh, because he laid the groundwork for all the future scholarship uh, uh, to come. So, he wrote a work for lay people. And he wrote a work for lay people. Lay people don't need to be bogged down with instructions. Just where does it come from? Uh, they, they weren't even studying. The reason why he wrote why it is because they weren't that? studying the Talmud. Why would you tell them where the Talmud it came from? They didn't care. So, they just want to know what to do. Exactly. So okay. so that's probably why he didn't write the sources. Right. Uh, as to your, your other question, the uh, no one really kind of has that, none of his contemporaries had that same bold initiative to say, we are writing down a definitive work of halacha for lay people. Uh, thus, many of them, their sources are self-evident. For example, the rush, the aforementioned rush, not, mentioned, not on this list, but... Uh, one of the great luminaries of the medieval times, of the Rishonim, who wrote uh, on Halakha, he writes it in the order of the Talmud. So it's very easy to find where his sources are because his sources are on the same page that he's writing on. So on page number one of the book of Brachos, he'll have his, you know, he'll go in the order of the page. So you just follow the Talmud and you, you can go uh, and see what the Rush says in, in order. Um, uh, others have written down sources and some have not as well but um, uh, but the Rama. remember with his he was also a very innovative thinker very creative uh, and independent thinker and he wouldn't he would sometimes say things that on the surface seem to be in direct opposition with the Talmud and like like I said that makes the tremendous uh, uh, grounds for Torah study to try to understand what's going on I cannot tell you how many people uh, have written books, have dedicated their lives to studying the Rambam. And typically you'll find people that themselves are are, are, uh, are geniuses who feel like there's a challenge that we don't find elsewhere in Torah, uh, or at least not in that same realm, uh, that is implied by studying the Rambam because of the fact that so much of what he's writing is... Uh, the sources are unknown, and that kind of is a special challenge that a lot of people feel motivated to try to unlock. Mm-hmm. So,
1: has there ever been an estimate
0: of Maimonides' IQ? I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if there's been an estimate of Maimonides' IQ, but I would, I would, I would, it, I would encourage you to just get a scope of uh, of what he accomplished in his life. Uh, just a, a quick introduction: at the age of fifteen, he grew up in Spain. Uh, in, in, in Cordova, right? Uh, at the age of 15, his family and many other Jews in Spain were kicked out of Spain uh, with threats of of execution if they don't convert to Islam because of the radical Islams, the Almohads that captured Spain at that time. He fled to Morocco, to North Africa, with his family. Uh, and despite finding temporary refuge in Morocco, the Almohads eventually captured Morocco. So at the age of 15, him and his family, they lived in mountains in northern Morocco, in the Atlas Mountains, for nine years. When he moved to Egypt at the age of 24, he became the doctor of the king, right? we became the doctor a little bit later, but at the age of, uh, um, I think, um, later on. But he published the first commentary on all of Mishnah. Could you imagine being a 15-year-old and writing a comment and living in caves and writing a commentary on 63 books of Mishnah that hadn't been done before? Mishnah's already around for a thousand years and no one was able to do that. And the Rambam, a teenager living in, a, living, living in tents, does that. And not only that, it's not a commentary on Mishnah. It's really a commentary that invokes all of Talmud. And he has the gumption at the age as of a teenager, to say I will tell you, I will organize the thirteen principles of Jewish faith. Right. Can you imagine no. something that no one's ever even thought of doing prior? To say, oh, let me organize the core principles of Judaism into thirteen immutable principles. That these are principles, and these are necessary beliefs of all Jews. These, and not others. Where did you get his it, medical training? Well, all all doctors uh, of those time were self trained. So. Uh, but, you know, he have, we have works that he wrote on medicine. Like, it's, it's unbelievable what the man accomplished. And that was uh, maybe the, not even the most, the, you know, the top two most influential books that he wrote. So just, just you know, j- just as an idea. Either way, I would encourage everyone to get a sense of that. Maybe we'll talk about that. Uh, uh, I just, um, I want to make sure we finish this tonight. Because I want to get, we'll, we'll dedicate a class to analyzing the Rambam and his impact and his legacy and his... Uh, and his, um, uh, his, uh, uh, the scope of his uh, literature. Okay. We study Torah, and we create new worlds. What does this mean? So I want to start with Adam. Adam had Torah or not? Did he have Torah? So Adam, on one hand, is a man of tremendous capacity, the descriptions that we have of him in Jewish literature are astounding. He was able to see from one end of the, the world to the other end of the world. He's able to rival the angels. The angels see him and prostrate themselves because they think he's God. Did he, did he, did he have Torah once he ate it? The, the no, he didn't get Torah. That's right. Well, so, so Adam had what's called Ruach HaKodesh. Adam, had, Adam was made of the image of God. Adam was able to understand every creature, what its essence was, what letters God used to create it, and thus give it a name. Adam is essentially all of human intellect merged into one.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, yet he was still lacking. Uh, what happens? The serpent comes and tells him, oh, the Almighty told him the tree from, not to eat from the tree. Do you know why the Almighty told you not to eat? Not to, not to? Eat from the tree? Because he knows that you're to be like him. So Rashi explains, what exactly that that did the serpent tell him? The serpent told him, you eat from the tree, you'll become God's rival. God creates a world, you will be able to create a world as well. So Adam, peak humanity, the one thing he was lacking, the one thing that he coveted, was the fact that he was not able to create worlds. Fast forward to chapters of the fathers. Chapter 3, Mishnah 14. The Jewish people are beloved because the tool, the, uh, the wonderful tool was given to them. That the Almighty gave us the wonderful tool that he used to create the world. We know the Torah has often been described as the blueprint for the world. There's a very famous teaching in the Zohar: "Estakel bo ubara alma." The Almighty looked into the Torah and created the world. Well, Jewish tradition say tradition says that the Torah preceded the world by <coughs> hundreds of generations, according to the Talmud uh, in Shabbos. Uh, Now, what that means, of course, is a good question. But the Almighty used the Torah to create the world. And who did he give the Torah to? To the Jewish people. Thus, what Adam coveted, what we have. Adam had everything, but he was lacking one thing. He was lacking the ability to be like God. He was lacking the ability to create worlds. God created the world. But how did God create the world? He used the Torah. And what did he do with the Torah? He gave it to us. Whose Torah is it? Is it God's Torah or is it our Torah? Okay, well, it's kind of a little bit of both. Well, we study... So exactly, but we study God's Torah. Yeah, he gave it to us. He formulated it. it but then he gave it to us. The, the verse in, in Deuteronomy tells us, "Lo, bashamayim hi, The Torah is not in the heavens. The Torah is here. It's ours. The Talmud says, the angels go over to God and say, God, when's Rosh Hashanah? Which is kind of a question a lot of Jews ask. When's Rosh Hashanah? We have to plan our uh, annual trip to the synagogue. (laughs) Unfortunately, that's a reality today. Uh, Angelic talk from modern Jews. But the Talmud says, the angels come and ask God, when's Rosh Hashanah? Do you know what the Almighty says? I don't know. We have to ask the Jewish people the Jewish people decide when when Rosh Hashanah is. We have the Torah and we can almost do with it what we please, which sounds bizarre. Of course, there are certain regulations within within which we need to operate. But the Talmud tells a fantastic story in Baba Metziah 59b of a disagreement amongst the rabbis. And the disagreement centers around the Pure, purity status of a certain oven. achnai. It was a certain serpentine shaped oven. And a, a question with regards to the purity status of that oven. And they brought up this question in the House of Scholarship, and there was a disagreement. And one rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer, the greatest rabbi of his generation, he gets up and he says, this is the halacha. And the rest of the rabbis say, No, we disagree with you. This is not, the the, 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 the opposite is the halachal. And they start duking it out. Ultimately, he comes up to a vote. And he loses. But, of course, he was a very feisty person. We can learn about Rabbi Eliezer as well, put him on our list. Very feisty person. And he says, I'm not giving up. So he makes a proclamation. If I'm right, let heaven announce it. And they're sitting in the base medrash, and they hear a booming prophetic voice. where Leazar is right. From heaven. Prophecy. Everyone's impressed, right? Wrong. Lo no. b'shem The Torah is not in the heavens. We don't care almost what God wants. Which sounds, of course, heretical. How can we not care what God wants? But there is a process, and the process is Achrei Rabim Lahatos. We, when the Sanhedrin rules, that becomes Torah. We are partners with God in creating the world. We use Torah to create the world. God, of course, contributed to that. We contribute to that as well. Which sounds astonishing. Does it still
1: work, or it doesn't do it? Work?
0: That's a good question. But either, let's then finish to continue the story. He says to them, okay, you're not impressed by that? Listen to this. They will go outside, reach them outside. And he says to them, oh, you see the river flowing? If I'm right, let the river start flowing the opposite direction. And lo and behold, if I was flowing the opposite direction, they say, pfft, doesn't matter. He points to a tree. If I'm right, the tree is going to be uprooted and moved hundred yards in that direction. The tree goes unrooted. No big deal. Finally, he says, if I am right, if I'm Let the walls of the base medrash cave in. Let the walls of the house of study cave in. And before you know it, the walls start caving in from all different directions. So another one of his contemporaries starts praying to have it stopped. So the walls kind of stopped halfway. Because they didn't want to go all the way down, and they couldn't go all the way back up because there was this conflict amongst the scholars. Ultimately, this story ended tragically because... He didn't. He refused to, uh, you know, to acquiesce, and they ended up uh, putting him in chayim. They ended up excommunicating him for the rest of his life. He was a pariah, was... Rabbi yeah. But either way, this damage. This story is a very.
1: No, I, I didn't get it. Why did they
0: excommunicate him? Because he refused to accede to them. He refused to. He refused to accept their ruling, and he he, he refused to accept the ruling of the, of the Sanhedrin. Uh, despite the fact that he was arguably a greater scholar than all of them. And,
1: well, one ruling
0: on what? Oh, this particular law.
1: Oh, okay. So he disagreed. He thought that
0: yes. God should decide. No, he thought he was right. And he said, I've got a my, side, my side. But either way, like, this kind of, I think, elevates the status of Torah and really the status of Torah scholarship as well. When we study Torah... We're doing something that the angels cannot do. We're doing something that Adam wanted more than anything else to do. When we study Torah, we kind of continue the creation of the world. You know, the Greeks were always making the argument that the world is static. It always was, always will be. It's finite. It's fixed. And the Jews, thousands of years already have been arguing that we live in a dynamic world a changing world, a world that had a beginning and has a conclusion, but there's development in the interim. The Torah is like that as well. Of course, there are fixed premises in the Torah, but the idea of our contribution to Torah, we can say a Torah insight and we create a spiritual reality that will exist forever. So is studying the Torah part of tikkun olam? Absolutely. And we already mentioned that prior. But of course, the study in Torah is, is part of tikkun olam. Because we're actually creating a perfect world, but it's, it's kind of in the in literal, in the in spiritual sense. Uh, I'll give you another example of this, kind of how, how the literal spiritual world can a- actually converge onto the physical world. The Talmud tells of these two scholars that every Friday afternoon would study together. What would they study? Sefer Yitzira. The Book of Creation. This book is purported to have been written by Abraham. Uh, I think we still have copies of it today. I don't think I would really know what to do with it. Yeah, you have a copy? Excellent. You have a copy. It's not, it's not meant for lay people. <laughs> if the Ramam was written for lay people, this was not meant for, written for lay people. Uh, and they studied this every Friday afternoon. And when they studied it, they also created a calf. And they would slaughter the calf and eat it for Shabbos. Every Shabbos they would have fresh meat, meat that they got out of an animal that they created with studying Torah. This is the Talmud in Sanhedrin 60. It means literally the words studying Torah has the capacity to create the world, much less a, you know, uh, one species or one animal. That's just be no big deal, right? You're you're skeptical, I see, Howard. (laughs) Well, me too. Well, I'm saying it's hard for us to imagine. I'm saying, but we I'm saying, but the idea of the Torah being some. I mean, like I said, this really changes our perspective in the world. I have a quote here. This is from the Ibn Ezra. He says like this. He says, "Those whose minds are empty will wonder, what did Moses do on the mountain for forty days and forty nights." But they would understand that even if Moses was standing there thousands of times longer, and was studying for just you know for, you know for as long as you can imagine, he wouldn't understand one one thousandth of God himself. And certainly, you know then of course the verse the verse says that Moshe tells God you started showing me a little bit. You started. Like all of Torah, you know, that's just one little drop in the ocean of 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 of, of God. But even that one drop in the ocean, you know, I, we talked to kids today uh, who, who finished their bar mitzvah studying and they're like, well I have done it all, right? I've mastered it all. I
1: know somebody like that. It's like
0: I have spent six sweet six Wednesday nights for a half hour and now I'm done. I, I can retire. And then the people that spend their entire life studying Torah, they talk about what they grasp in Torah as being a drop in the bucket or even a drop in the ocean. So, but you know, it changes the perspective of what Torah is. If Torah is the blueprint for creating everything, you know, just last week they, um, there was a study that was published about... Uh, about Uh, how many, a new estimation of how many species exist in the world. You want to see this story? story? Uh, Previously, the number was estimated between uh, 1.25 and 8.7 million different species. Uh, Exist today. Yes. Uh, And last week, they published a new study that puts that number around a trillion. So not a billion million and certainly not in the millions, in the trillions, which obviously is astounding. Uh, But imagine, you know, if I had to write a manual how to create a cell, how long would that manual be, how vast would that manual be, or how to create an organ, or how to create a species, or how to create, certainly, our universe How big of a manual would that be? And we have a Torah that has the capacity to scale to those astronomical sizes. Somehow the Torah, we're told, is the blueprint for this all. And we have a capacity to tap into that. We tap into that, we create for ourselves a little world as well. I know this sounds kind of very... What do you mean? Well, I, I'm, 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 just, I'm just kind of giving a picture of the scope of the world that we live that was formed by Torah, and thus kind of to try to amplify or to augment our perspective of what Torah is capable of and how our contribution to Torah creates an element, a spiritual element that lasts forever.
1: What is, a, what is a soul? I mean, it was a discussion, <clears throat> I remember at some point that... What is a soul? You know, yeah, you know, they could now with artificial intelligence, artificial neural network, they could create sort of like an intelligence, a, a human being with that intelligence. And if they have like somebody like a, you know, even a Jewish rabbi, they can gradually start replacing his neurons or his organs with artificial thing, and after a while, there's nothing left there but just mechanical things. Is the soul going so you're, is referring,
0: soul uh, you're referring to what's known as the singularity, yeah. uh, the idea of artificial intelligence kind of eclipsing human intelligence and thus the human experience can kind of exist as if you could kind of, this is, this is science fiction, right? Right now, it's still science fiction. Uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, but, but there's a
1: specific question. If we take a human being and we start replacing his body parts gradually, one by one over the years as he ages, and eventually we'll have replaced everything. So that's no longer a human being originally, but is that still the soul still well, attached to that? Okay,
0: well, let me reformulate your statement. Yes. No, because your, your cells that comprise your body are different cells than comprised your body yesterday. Yeah, right. Because the Almighty created the body in a way that itself, uh, uh, it repairs itself all the time, and thus cells are swapped away for, for new cells. If you take a, a, a molecular level, a human body, and you look at it from the way it was seven years ago to the way it is today, 98% of the cells are different. Right. So, And I think that to me is indicative of the idea of a body just being merely a... Uh, a, a placeholder for the soul. Mm-hmm. You know, a common question people ask when we talk about uh, about, uh, about, um, uh, about reincarnation is, well, which soul, which body do you have? Right. And, the, and that right. question assumes that you have one body. And we know already today that you don't have one body. It's just your cells are constantly being, uh, well, being recycled.
1: That that we have something entirely synthetic Made of
0: silicon, it still holds the soap. Well, I, well, my, my point is is that, and, and, and by the way, there's an exception to that. Your brain cells don't get swapped out, which is the Almighty's gift to us, because otherwise we would forget everything.
1: Well,
0: we can replace all of that too. Oh, we can't. We can't replace blood, brain cells. Well, uh, yeah, well we, can,
1: we can do. It. I mean, we well, just, uh, either way. Wait a second. What
0: are we saying? Here? I don't know. We're going off topic. Uh, well, we're going off topic. Uh, but uh, but uh, yes, and that, and that uh, to me that is uh, indicative of the role of the body. It's just nothing more than a place of you know, the soul. They
1: actually, have read that they actually have uh, done that. They replace some parts of the brain with some artificial. Maybe
0: brain. maybe let's get back to our topic at hand. Um, I want to finish this uh, uh, quickly, so I want to look at some examples of people in history that have uh, kind of achieved Torah and by dint of their achieving Torah, achieve mastery over the world. Because if the world is treated with Torah, thus you get the master key of the world, and you can manipulate it. We find many stories, uh, even after prophecy hath been concluded, we find stories of great Torah luminaries reviving dead people, for example. Uh, or uh, the, there's a Gemara that talks about Rabbi Yochanan. Not Rabbi Yochanan. I'm sorry. Uh, it was Rabbi Yosef Ben-Uziel. Whenever he studied Torah uh, and a bird flew over him, the bird would get incinerated. He had total mastery over, the, over the, the... The Gemara tells stories about Rabbi Shimon. Rabbi Shimon, he would look at people and he'd be upset at them. They would, they would be just combust. Uh, and this is kind of, obviously, the, this seems a little bit out there. Yeah. Um, I read a story today. I read a story today. Okay. The story is about Rabbi Kiva Eger, who was a rabbi in Europe, in Posen, uh, who died in 1837. So it's relatively recent, still 200 years ago. Uh, there was a, a, a person in, in his town that uh, was sick, and of course, as the rabbi of town, he would go visit the person. The person is very sick. Doctors say we don't know what to do with him. And he finds out concurrently that the king's doctor happens to be passing by in the town. So he sends someone to get him. He brings the king's doctor. The king's doctor examines him and says, Sorry, there's no help for this guy. There's no way to cure his illness. There's no antidote for this. He is history. Rabbi Tiver tells him, Well, okay, you're the king's doctor. What would you tell the king? if he had the same illness. So the doctor says, well, it's interesting you ask, because if many years ago, the king actually did have the same illness. And we discovered that there's only one antidote for this illness. There's a really rare bird that's only found in a certain tropical, uh, 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 or in a tropical, a certain, a certain arid uh, desert climate. And it, it doesn't appear very often, but if you capture that bird, and you give the patient to eat from the meat of that bird, then they'll get cured. Problem is, is that when we had the problem with the king, he sent legions and legions of soldiers, and eventually captured it, and they saved him. But you, you're some old Jew. Right? You have no chance. Goodbye, your toast. So he left. And Rabbi Kiv started praying to the Almighty. And he said to him, listen, this guy... Right. This king, he got a cure for himself, because he's the king. But you know who's the king of all kings? God! And you know who's God's children? It's us! So he pleaded to the Almighty to try to help this, this, this king, so to speak, the, this Jewish person. He finishes praying, and they hear a tapping sound on the window, they look and they see a bird that none have ever seen, on the windowsill. They go get the bird. They they instru- the Robert instructs them to, to clip the wings of the bird, so he has the wings as a testament to this miracle. They give they, they you know they, they they cook the bird and and they give it to him and he gets better. Well, when was this supposed? To be? What were we talking? About? Okay. Either way, uh, uh, so we could argue with the historicity of the story. This is not so long ago, and it's a documented story. So I don't know exactly what year, but we're talking about about 200 years ago. Fairly recently. To me, I don't question the story, or at least the story can happen. I'll tell you another story. This I know because this happened in, within the past 15 years. There was uh, what's who, someone who is arguably the greatest Torah scholar alive today, Rabbi Chaim Kaniesti, who lives in Israel. Uh, he was studying a very obscure part of Torah that deals with a certain variety of grasshoppers. We know the grasshoppers are kosher, but there's so many different varieties of them. We don't know which one's which. That's why Sephardic communities still have customs. They still have traditions to which ones are kosher or not. Some of them still eat it. Um, Bon appétit, of course. Uh, But, so he was studying this, and he didn't know exactly, he couldn't understand exactly what the anatomy of this particular grasshopper was. And he's studying, he's trying to understand, and as he's studying on his page, a grasshopper jumps on his page. And he's able to examine it. That's a story that's, document that there's there's hundreds of these stories This this person's around alive today. And you go to him and every time you see him he's surrounded by twenty people. So like the these stories that come uh the, you know that, that that come out of of, of his of his uh, uh, uh you know of his household are just that's just one story. That's but that's like happens every other week. How's that possible? Well if you study all of Torah like he does every year he does every single year he finishes all of Torah. What does all of Torah mean? Babylonian, Babylonia, of course, all the books of the Tanakh, all the Comedians of the Tanakh, Babylonian, time, Jerusalem, Talmud, all the Ram, all the Shulchan, all the Torah, everything. Everything. Every single year he finishes it. Not only that, when there's a leap year, so there's an extra month in the year, right? He writes a book on Jewish scholarship that month. So, so every leap year we know there's a new book coming out for him because he has an extra month to work on. To work. Uh, and I'm saying, like, the, the, someone told me over the, over the holiday, over Pesach, that Reb Hankei F.C. wrote, uh, there's some guy who's writing a book about Jewish names. So Reb Khan says, okay, you know what I'll do for you? I'll write for you a list of every single Jewish name in all of Jewish writings. Not only that, I'll do it in alphabetical order. So all the names of the Tanakh, all the hundreds of names of the Tanakh, all the names of the Talmud, the hundreds of, of rabbis and, 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 and Jewish women that are mentioned in the Talmud, all the different names. I'll write down for you hundreds and hundreds of names, alphabetical order. Like, It's just unbelievable. Someone like that, who dedicates their life to Torah study, doesn't waste a, a single second, they have the master key to the world. Of course, if they need to know what the anatomy of a grasshopper looks like, the grasshopper is bound by the laws of nature, of Torah nature, to go and p- p- jump up on his, uh, on his book. What happens when we study Torah? I just want to uh, quickly finish here because I am committed to finishing uh, this today. Uh, I'll quickly wrap up here. The Talmud says as follows. It quotes a verse here. That someone who toils, someone else toils for him. The Talmud says, What does this mean? If someone toils in Torah study here, the Torah toils on his behalf elsewhere, says Rashi. The Torah, as if the Torah itself intercedes upon his behalf and beseeches uh, the creator to, to take care of him and to give him the secrets of Torah. When we study Torah, we gain allies. The Talmud says that when we study Torah, we're protected and saved. says the Talmud, life is like a human walking in the desert at night. What happens? You're steered of the various kinds of thorns and branches that you could trap, you could, you could fall over. You're steered of ditches in the road, ditches anywhere. You have no idea. you can't see, it's pitch dark. You're steered of predators, of animals that could come rip you to shreds. And lastly, not lastly, but uh, you're also steered of, of thieves, of marauders, of conquistadors, people that are roaming around that could injure you. And lastly, you have no idea which way you're going. So you have a lot of problems. So, we're in this world, it's dark, we have no idea where we're going. Says the verse, the verse, kiner, mitzvah of a Torah, or the mitzvah is a candle. You have a candle, you have a little bit of light. The Torah is light. The Torah is like the sun. When you have the Torah, you don't worry about where it's, it's daylight. You're not worried about tripping, you know which direction you're going, you're not worried about the, you know, the, the, the marauders, you're not worried about the uh, ab- ab- about the uh, the animals, the predators right Torah gives us guidance in the world, and lastly, and with this we shall conclude uh, we when we start Torah we become joyous. The Torah is described as, it delights it gladdens the heart. We know that on Tisha B'Av, the day of mourning of the Jew- for the Jewish people, the national day of mourning that we are prohibited to eat and drink, but also prohibited study Torah. It's the one day of the year that we're not allowed to study Torah and the reason why is because Torah makes us happy, it delights us. And I think now that we have enumerated 25 different reasons why we study Torah and the benefits that uh, are uh, accrued to us individually, to the world, to Qun Alam, collectively over the past uh, 11 discussions that we've had on the issue, I think it becomes very clear indeed why Torah is such a joyous activity. Uh, So I think We hopefully, I'm sorry? Sure, sure, I can make a handout for that. Um, So I think we have sufficiently addressed the question as to why we study Torah. Of course, a lot is yet to be uncovered. What Torah is? Who wrote it? What's the authorship? What are the various questions that have been raised on those issues? What's the oral Torah? Why was it oral? Why Why was it not written? Really try to delve into this. Uh, in, in kind of a, a way that, you know, uh, in an advanced way to try to really understand what's going on. Um, and we hope to, to do that next week. And okay. uh, I thank you all for coming and for listening. And I look forward to continuing our journey together. Thank
1: you. Thanks, Thanks Ram. Ram, I have a question just.